the working title for tonight's talk is Waking Up from Negativity. Particularly in the last 25 years or so, there's been, as we all know, a strong movement of Buddhism coming to the West. And with Buddhism coming to the West, there is naturally a change taking place in the emphasis of the teaching, which part of the teaching is emphasized and which part maybe isn't so much. And that has to do with the fact that in the West, we are somewhat, we are considered somewhat psychologically sophisticated. And that means that we have uh, a tradition a little over a hundred years old of a psychological tradition of really looking at our own minds and understanding ourselves from the traditions that have been brought down by certain uh, certain people. And so as Buddhism comes to the West, it naturally is going to have to find its way to integrate with some of these other traditions or these ways of working with the mind. It seems that in the East, or the people who are really practicing that are of Asian mind, Eastern mind, don't seem to have the same psychological tendencies that we seem to have here in the West. One of the main ones seems to be around this uh, tendency towards self-hatred or self-denial that seems to be certainly very strong in our Western culture. And I think it's even highlighted more because when the Asian teachers come to the West and start to teach the Westerners, they're really quite surprised by the, the strength of the movement of self-hatred and self-negativity. Because I don't think that in the East it's really quite uh, actually much of a phenomenon at all. And my sense of part of the reason why, that, why it is that way is because the family unit is really very, very strong there. And of course, having just returned from India, I'm reminded of the way that the uh, families live together there. And it's so deep in the culture that the family really stays together. You know, the elderly parents are living with the children, and the grandchildren are living with the grandparents and the parents and the sisters and brothers. And sometimes next door, you have the uncles, the brothers and the sisters and their families uh, living quite nearby. And there's quite a strong family unit where people are very much held within that community of family. And it seems that through the breakdown of the family here in the West, it has caused a lot of problems for us psychologically. That seems to be one of the factors where we don't really have so much sense of belonging or sense of purpose within a community, within a community structure. And within that, there's so much emphasis on being an individual 
and becoming somebody, being successful, being unique, being uh, uh, somebody special in the society, that so much of the emphasis goes on, goes along the lines of that competition. And we become very individualized and isolated and somewhat alienated from our communities, our sisters and our brothers. So when the Asian teachers come to the West, they're really quite surprised. One, exa- one, one story that I heard, and I don't have the details of the story, but we have a sister center at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. And one time, we were fortunate enough to have the Dalai Lama come and visit there. I wasn't there at the time. But the Dalai Lama wanted to see the center and what was happening there. It was one of the, one of the first strong Buddhist centers in, in America. And he was sitting up at the front and in some dialogue with some of the yogis there who were sitting on the retreat. Nice, nice treat, nice surprise. <laughs> Having the Dalai Lama <laughs> interacting. And, <laughs> and so there was one um, man who was telling the Dalai Lama about his mind and the difficulty in his own mind and, and really the depth of the hatred that he felt for himself. And my memory is, in hearing the story, is that the Dalai Lama was so surprised. He was so surprised. And, and he looked at this man, and, 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 and he, was, he, he said, and this is, of course, paraphrased, something like, why do you dislike yourself so much? You know? He couldn't really understand where something like this would arise within one's psyche, within one's consciousness. Where, where would this root of hatred be? And he just felt so sad. The story goes that it was very, very painful for him to hear this man sharing the pain of his hatred towards himself. This was a long time ago. And I think that since there's been more discussion, I know particularly with the Dalai Lama and among the teachers, but what is this? What is this, the source of this? How can this, how can this be there? How could somebody have hatred towards this beautiful organism, this tender, this gentle organism? And so it's very important for us, for all of us here, to really look at this within ourselves, these, these seeds of this negativity, this judgment, this criticism, this hatred, sometimes abuse and violation, that really arises within our own psyche. Because these are the seeds within our own minds that get projected out to others and to the wider community and really is the cause for a lot of the pain and the destruction that we find all around. In a way, we're telling ourselves a story. 
I mean, we're always telling ourselves a story. Maybe you've noticed that over the days here. We've got a nice long narrative going <laughs> that doesn't actually seem to come to an end. And one of the, one of the secrets <laughs> that I like to tell is that even after doing a long, intensive practice, and some of the people who have been here a long time will kind of smile at this, even after two months or three months, four months of really doing very, very intensive concentration practice, that story still goes on. <laughs> it's still weaving there. <laughs> Nothing seems to really be able to put that out. So it seems to be a feature <laughs> of being a human being or being in a human body and having a human mind that this story goes on. But I wonder if the problem really is the story, <laughs> because how could it be, you know, if the story goes on and on and on, and it is what in some ways gives shape, gives form, gives some sense to the life that we're living. We can't really do without a story. A story is something very beautiful, it could be very creative. But I think that perhaps we may take these stories too seriously and maybe believe in them too much and take them for the whole story. Take the stories that our thinking minds are revealing and think that's the whole story and there isn't anything more. Particularly when we tell ourselves things about ourselves and other people that aren't very nice and sometimes can be very painful and very destructive. Somehow we still are believing the story and think that our minds are revealing some kind of truth to us about ourselves and about others and about the world. And one of the very special things for me about the meditative tradition, the Buddhist medita meditative tradition, is it really asked me to question that. It asked me to question that story about myself. Is it true? Am I, can I really rely on my own mind to reveal the truth about myself? Because for years and years and years I did. And because I did, I was feeling a lot of torment in myself, in my life. Until somebody said to me, well, maybe it isn't true <laughs> what your mind is telling you about yourself and about others. And then something cracked. It's like, oh. <laughs> it's like the crack. It's like when, when a door is open of a, in a closet that, uh, that's been shut for hundreds or thousands or millions of years. And the door is open and a little light <laughs> starts to seep into that closet. And the closet is no longer dark because the light is being let in because the light dispels the darkness. And the dark cannot maintain when the light is, is, is seeping through. So it was like that for me when somebody said, oh, you don't have to believe everything your mind is telling you. 
And it was like that. It was like, oh, the light or some space or some possibility for something unknown, something different, (laughs) a different story. (laughs) Maybe some better news (laughs) than the news that that was being reported day after day after day. So it's a wonderful thing about the practice is that perhaps something can crack. We might even call that doubt, you know, the great doubt. The doubt that says, wait a minute, don't just believe everything you hear. Maybe there's some other truth. Some doubt about what the mind is saying. Because when we really look in our meditations at the mind, we see that it actually doesn't seem to be either that reliable or that stable. (laughs) That it's all over the place. It's just, as I use the example, it's swinging from branch to branch. Mm -hmm. But we really want to understand you know, there's, a, there's a, a strong longing, a strong drive to want to understand ourselves. And of course, the psychological traditions can be extremely helpful for that. And yet again, the emphasis can be sometimes too much on the, on the mind, on the past, on the past conditions of our life. And maybe not enough on that crack. <laughs> to see what else might be able to be revealed there. It's like this morning when the person asked the question about the inquiry into the feeling. Well, isn't, isn't inquiring into that feeling useful? Because there's some information that we can get from that. And it's true. We can find out by asking ourselves questions, by looking into conditions, by, by looking into our, our, life, our life situation. But where does it end? Where does it end? Where does the questioning end? Where does the story end? That particular story, that particular story of our life that we know pretty well, actually, and is pretty familiar to us. Where does it end? In the Buddhist language, there's one wonderful word that I, I think is really descriptive and I also like to let people know about in case you don't know about it and in in it's a Pali word and the word is papancha papancha it's a wonderful word and it means the proliferation of thought it's like when we have one thought and then we have another thought and then another thought and another thought and we just keep we just keep going and going and going the whole proliferation it's it's named in the in the teachings as papancha and there's a definition that i like which from uh, um, a man named vimalo who's an old monk not an old monk he was a monk for a long time <laughs> have to be careful about those words <laughs> like an old yogi. It means you've been practicing for a long time. You're not necessarily old. (laughs) But papancha is often loaded with emotions. It's the notions that we carry that are colored and distorted by all kinds of unconscious projections 
and preconceived ideas, prejudices, and desires that we have. Now that's a lot. Unconscious projections and preconceived ideas and prejudices and desires, it's all loaded there and it goes on and on and on. And sometimes we can be very overwhelmed by all of this papancha, this proliferation in our own mind, particularly if we have little awareness of what's going on, particularly if we're quite identified in believing all that our mind is, uh, is spewing out. <laughs> it can be very overwhelming when we get caught in that. And yet there's the possibility of having some awareness of that whole process. We say, yeah, that's the proliferation. And if I follow that pro- proliferation, it's going to probably lead me eventually to some pain. Where is the freedom? Where is the relief? Where is the space from all of that? I want to read a um, part of a, a discourse, a, uh, a lecture, or what's called a sutta, that the Buddha gave on this, on, on, on looking at this kind of proliferation of the pain that we generate in our own minds. It's called the two wounds. The unlearned, unenlightened being experiences pleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings, and neutral feelings. The learned, noble disciple also experiences pleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings, and neutral feelings. In this case, monks, what is the distinction, the contrast between the learned, noble disciple and the unlearned, unenlightened being? When an unlearned, unenlightened being, is is that us? (laughs) Depends what you're identifying with here, either the unlearned, unenlightened one or the (laughs) learned, noble one. (laughs) We'll see what your mind does with it. (laughs) When an unlearned, unenlightened being encounters unpleasant feelings, he grieves, laments, wails, beats his or her chest, and is distraught and distracted therein. He experiences two kinds of feelings, namely in the body and in the mind. It is as as if an archer, having fired one arrow into a certain man, were then to fire a second arrow. That man would experience pain from both arrows. Such is the unlearned, unenlightened being. He experiences two kinds of pain, bodily and mental. Say a little more about this in a minute. As for the learned, noble disciple, experiencing experiencing unpleasant feeling, he neither grieves, laments, wails, nor beats his chest. He is not distressed. He experiences pain only in the body, not in the mind. Just as if an archer, having shot one arrow arrow into a certain man, were then to shoot a second arrow, but miss the mark. In this case, that man would experience pain only on account of the first arrow. Such is the learned noble disciple. 
he experiences pain in the body, but not in the mind. This is really very metaphoric of what the teachings are pointing to. That yes, there may be the first wound, it could be the first thought, or it could be a physical sensation in the body. But what are we, are we shooting that second arrow, <laughs> which could be <laughs> the wailing of, oh, why is this happening to me? Why does this keep happening to me? I'm never going to get anywhere. I'm really just a mess. <laughs> you know? And then feeling the, uh, the judgment of ourselves because we're in that kind of mind state. What's wrong with me? Why can't I get out of this mind state? I keep falling into this pit. And then maybe the, the third arrow, or maybe the fourth arrow by this time, feeling the shame, the guilt. Oh, I'm such a terrible person. I'm just going to be depressed the rest of my life. You know, there's no point in even living. You know, and then just keep shooting the arrows. But that's because we don't realize what we're doing. We don't realize that we're, we're continuing to do something, which in this case is to, to perpetuate this kind of thought about ourselves that's continuing to cause the pain. So is it possible to actually have the first arrow Sometimes it may just be the physical sensations in the body, which we're not even really shooting. It's just the pain that's coming up, but we're not shooting the second arrow, which is that of the mental proliferation about that experience. We say that he experiences the wound, the first wound in the body because it may even be that there's just a sensation, just a sensation which may be arising through a negative thought, a thought of anger towards ourselves, and then the feeling, the pain of that in the body. But even then we can just leave it in the body, feeling that contraction, feeling the density, feeling the heat just leaving it there in the body. We don't have to pick it up into the mind if we can see what we're doing, if we understand this process that we're involved in. This particular discourse goes on to say, moreover, he experiences, this is the learned noble one, moreover, he experiences no displeasure on account of that unpleasant feeling. So I think it's an interesting point here is it doesn't mean that there are no unpleasant feelings, (laughs) whether it's the unpleasant feelings that arise through the mind or the unpleasant feelings that arise through the body. They're still there, even in a Buddha. They're still there. But he experiences, he or she experiences no displeasure on account of that unpleasant feeling. Not being displeased over the unpleasant feeling the tendency towards aversion or anger contingent on that unpleasant feeling are not accumulated. There's nothing built up. There's no tendency that's accumulated on top of that unpleasant feeling. 
experiencing that unpleasant feeling, he does not seek distraction to the sense pleasures. Why not? Because the learned noble disciple knows of a way out of the unpleasant feelings other than distraction in the sense pleasures. And the way out is by not picking it up into the mind. Not seeking distraction in sense pleasures, the tendencies towards the desire on those pleasant feelings are not accumulated. Even those tendencies are not accumulated. Knowing things as they really are, these tendencies... I want to skip over a minute. Hmm. Experiencing pleasant feelings, he is not bound to it. Experiencing unpleasant feelings, he is not bound to that. Experiencing neutral feelings, he is not bound to that. Monks, this is the noble learned disciple, liberated from birth, which is being born into these difficult states, from aging, the process of going through it, from death, dying, into another birth, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. He is, I say, liberated from suffering. It's a very, very profound teaching if we get the significance of that, of what we really need to pay attention to in our own minds. So if we have a sensation in the body, like a knee pain, what would we be doing if we shot that second arrow? Can we just stay with the pain? Or watch how the mind has a tendency towards that aversion, towards wanting that experience to be different. Thinking that somehow that knee pain's outside of the meditation, I can only meditate if that knee pain goes away. That is the meditation. Watching how the papancha or the proliferation of mind comes about just to that bare sensation. Where somebody was saying today that they had a cold, a cold came on and didn't like the cold, didn't want the cold to be there because it was kind of a distraction in the meditation. But is it? Can a cold or some kind of physical condition be a distraction for us? Isn't that just it? Isn't that the next thing that we can be with? That we can watch that movement of mind, how we're relating to it, how if we're bringing some some tenderness, some gentleness, some ease, or are we bringing more negativity and aversion and anger towards that? But these are simple things, really, knee pain, colds, things that we've been dealing with. I got an email from my sister today, Los Angeles, and she has a friend who was diagnosed with cancer some months ago. And she was saying to me today that in the email, she was saying today in the email that she had lunch with her, and today's the day where she has to do some more radiation and she can, the hair is starting to fall out. 
And she knew this was going to happen, but now she's starting to experience it. And they were there at lunch together talking about it and just the, you know, that awful feeling of knowing that the hair is going to fall out through the treatment. This is when we're really tested. Not that I would or you would do that well in the face of this kind of test. But this is really what we're faced with. Can we not keep picking up the whole concept of cancer, such a big one, cancer and all that means and the story that we build and who I am and what it means about me and what it means about my life. And there, it's a big one for papancha, for proliferation. But if there's some wisdom, if there's some steadiness, if there's some understanding of working with the mind, working with the body, understanding the nature of things, would it be possible to stay with the bare actuality more and more and more? Not all the time. Not saying that, that she or you or I shouldn't get lost in the, in the despair and the, and the, the pain of the, of the circumstances. But for some relief, perhaps, for some crack where the light comes pouring in and we don't identify so strongly with that being all of who I am. I'm this person who has cancer, who has radiation treatments, and my hair is falling out. That's all of who I am. What a test. What a test to be able to have enough space in the mind so perhaps some other kinds of thoughts might be able to come through, or other kinds of feelings that might be more more positive or more uplifting, or that might be able to see the situation in a more whole way. I'm also a, I'm also a potter and I make beautiful pots, this woman does. I'm also a potter and I love to work with clay and my, my, my work is exhibited in galleries and people love my work and I can keep doing that. You know, how, how to incline the mind back to an also true reality without the mind getting so fixated on one particular. It's only one particular. It's only one particular phenomena that may be arising in any particular situation. But the habit is, the strong habit is, is for that fixation to happen and we just grab onto one idea or one aspect, or one notion, and get carried away with it. That fixating mind, it's like ice shaped in different forms. The mind just gets fixed, like ice cubes in the mind. When the attention freezes in the mind, and we feel that, we feel that narrowness, that confinement, that constriction in the mind. The mind just narrows on one aspect and pushes out all the other aspects that are just as true. Maybe we can't see that ourselves, but other people can see it. 
other, other people might be able to see our beauty and the joy and the light in our eyes and the clarity of our skin and the wonderful qualities that we have, but we can't see it. No. But the mind gets too fixated, like ice. But it's possible to see this. It's possible to see how this happens in the mind. If there is some space, if the mind has cracked, there are so many people who there isn't any space in the mind for any view to be changed. And we know people like that. They're totally fixed in their lives on the way things are and the way things are always going to be. So something has to shift in the mind. Something has to open even a little bit so there's some space, there's some light where we can start, things can start to move a little bit. Otherwise, it's, the mind can be quite rigid. It, it's not really, but there's the experience of that and then the outward manifestation of that. But when we actually have the experience of some space in the mind, some crack in the mind, then there's more possibility for fluidity, for some movement. And in the movement, then there's the possibility for that self-reflective nature to come in and say, wait a minute, look what I'm doing. Look how I'm talking to myself. Look how I'm treating myself. Look how I think about myself. Look how that gets projected onto others and onto my world around me. Is it true? And we can bring in some questioning, bring in some doubt, and it's really the beginning of some great awakening. It's like when the sun starts to come up in the morning. We watch the sun and all of a sudden things get brighter and lighter and warmer. It's like that when that light starts to arise in consciousness and we start to see things more clearly. We start to see ourselves more clearly. Our eyes start to open and we see around us in a way we may have never seen before and we say, gosh, look how I was thinking for so long, all those years. I do that sometimes when I look at old photographs of myself. And I can remember what I thought at the time when I saw those old photographs, like 10 years or 20 years ago, and I think, God, <laughs> boy, what a terrible picture. <laughs> and now, you know, 10 years, 20 years later, I look at it and go, oh, how pretty. What a, what a pretty woman. But I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't see that then. You know, it seems like... We can't, when we're right in it, we get so fixated on the particulars, oh, the hair, the, the, the expression, the face, the clothes. <laughs> can't really see, can't really see very clearly what's really there. This is a quatrain from Goethe. What is most difficult of all? that which seems easiest of all, to see with your eyes what lies before your eyes. To see with your eyes what lies before your eyes. 
so difficult for us until we start to see until we start to see and I know that that's happening for many people here and it's a wonderful part for me and other teachers to really join with people on retreats as the eyes start to open and the sharing in the circles, the sharing in the interviews start to reveal that opening, that awakening, that ah, that dawning of wisdom, that dawning of insight. When we can walk outside and look at the tree and ah, wow, you know, see the tree, maybe never, you know, some people coming here, you know, many times and maybe never even really, really looking at the tree. But coming on retreat, having the time, the mind opens, the heart opens, the, the uh, things, that the, the petty worries that we usually carry with us, with us drop away. And we go out and we look at the tree. And it's as if we are the tree, or the tree is part of us, or an extension of us, or revealing something back about ourselves. I remember one time when I went to the mountains in one mountain range in America, up in Idaho, and I looked at the mountains, and they were reflecting something right back to me about myself. I felt my own inner strength, my own supreme power in looking at those mountains. But yet only if there's some space, (laughs) only if we're not caught up in the story of our life, in that limited story of our life. This is a quote from Cahil Gibran. And could you keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracles of your life your pain would not seem less wondrous than your joy. If you could keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracles of your life, your pain would not seem less wondrous than your joy. But yet that's the human condition. That's the, in a way, the tragedy of the human condition. We seem to be in, we as a human, human race, we seem to be in this constant search for a state more fulfilling than the one we have. With this constant search where we repel ourselves out of the present moment, extinguishing and sometimes annihilating the situation that we find ourselves in to try to find one that's more fulfilling. And in this way, we're in this almost perpetual state of stress. And, and I think that that really does describe our situation well. And I think that some people here, uh, even on the retreat, were describing their situation in that way. With the physical conditions that we may experience some, in some of the sitting, some of the walking, the pains in the back or the pains in the head, the emotional pains, and that propelling to get away, that propelling 
to annihilate, to find something that's going to be more fulfilling, more satisfying. Not really identifying the stress (laughs) that is actually involved in that running. In that running. That attempt to get away, to get away, to get away. But it's okay because we don't know what we're doing. I mean, we don't know. I mean, if we knew what we were doing, of course we would stop doing it. If someone would shed some light on our painful situation, say, please, you know, tell me what I'm doing that's creating all this difficulty in myself, we would be so welcome for it. But the deep wisdoms of life, the deep truths of life seem to be a secret until we come across them quite fortunately. And somebody says, look what you're doing. You're running away. You're running away. That what you need to do is just stop. Stop and see if you can feel into your experience. Really feel it. Really embrace wholeheartedly what's happening in yourself. Don't run away. Face it. Look at it. Find out what's going on. Find out why you're trying to run away all the time. And so if we have the courage and we have the willingness and we have enough resources at that time, maybe we can stop and take a look and breathe and be with ourselves, come back to ourselves in that way. And in this way, we start to see that everything has its place, that really everything has its place that there's a purpose, there's a reason, there's an intelligence for everything that arrives, everything that arises. And we start to be able to be more inclusive. Say, okay, this, okay, this, all right, I'll take this, I'll take this. And we start to embrace more of all of what's happening. And we see that there's a kind of perfection, really, in the moment-to-moment unfolding of our life and the conditions of life. Well, I was teaching in, in India one of our managers on our, on our retreat, this wonderful man named Chris. I told the story in India. There's a few people here who heard this. He was telling me about this um, example, how this is a metaphor for him. We were having this talk about this very thing, about inclusiveness and opening to all aspects of life. And he was saying that one time he had this, this kurta, this shirt that he really loved. You know, in India you get somewhat attached to your clothes because you don't have very many. You're just carrying a few in a rucksack and you have to wear them again and again and again. <laughs> so he had this, real, this, this shirt that he really loved. And one day he looked down and there was this big 
stain on it. <laughs> it's a big brown stain. And he looked down at it, and he just, in that moment, because of where his mind was at, because of what was happening for him, he looked down at that, and he said, Wow, that is the most beautiful stain I have ever seen. And he really got into looking at that stain and just seeing how that stain just really somehow fit right on his shirt. And it was a really beautiful color, and it just somehow really spoke to him about his being there and just how it had such a perfection to it. And he saw, he could see in that moment how maybe at another time that, that stain would have definitely not been <laughs> invited to be there that it would have been wrong, it would have been bad, he would have freaked out. He said, what am I going to do? It's wrecked my curtains, wrecked my shirt. But in that moment, it was so beautiful to him. He loved the stain. <laughs> because his heart was so open. His heart wasn't saying, oh, this should be here, that shouldn't be here. I can have that, but not that. The whole way that we're in constantly dividing and separating and pushing out and taking this and pushing out that. But there was a space for the stain. It wasn't bad. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't wrong. But it had its place. How can we be more inclusive in this way? where we start to see that everything does have its place. There is a kind of perfection here. And I think this comes when the mind isn't so fixated on this and that and right and wrong and good and bad and here and there and having things in its place. (laughs) But a way that we allow for a certain fluidity, a flow. We allow for the things of life to come and we allow them to cease. Mm -hmm. We let things come as they come and we allow them to go as they go. Maybe not taking things quite so personally Mm -hmm. in that. There's not so much sense of ownership or sense of self around that the way I want things to be or the way I should be or the way things should be, but more of a selfless way of being where we're not quite as bothered by the conditions of our life. Having a more open acceptance to the way things come, the way things go. When I was in India, and when I am in India, it often wakes up the question for me, why do I have such fortunate conditions in my life? Because I'll sit outside, the place that we teach is at the Thai temple in Bodhgaya, and it's a very beautiful temple, and the grounds are very landscaped and very manicured, very beautiful. But you walk outside the gate, and it's just the streets of India. 
And our, uh, we have a chai walla, a tea, a tea walla. Does that mean chai walla? Is what we call him in India. The man who sells the tea, he's our chai walla. And he's outside the gate all the time, every year that I go, for the last 14, 15 years, he's outside the gate selling tea. And in, the, in recent years, the Tiwala's son has been growing up, and now he's about 20, and over the last four years, he's been learning English, just on the street, just from the Westerners who come by, so that he could speak, so he can talk to the Westerners. And so over, over the last few years now, I've been able to talk to him and find out something about his life. And so sometimes I'll sit there and listen in his broken English, and he'll tell me, the stories about what he has to do and how they live and, and uh, you know, getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning when it's dark and, and having to sit in the chai shop before anybody comes to make sure that um, everything's in order and nobody takes anything and, and he's all alone in the cold and night. Sometimes he has to sleep in a little shed to protect the, shed, to protect the chai shop so nobody will, will take anything just sleeping on the floor and I ask him well do you have a blanket are you warm enough and he said yeah I'm warm enough I have something it gets so cold there at night and then he told me he said well what do you do in the in the summer when no, nobody's coming and nobody's drinking tea because people only go to Bodhgaya up till about March and in the summer there's no tourists and nobody wants to drink tea because it's too hot so he said his father can't work so what he has to do is he has to take a, he's been able to get an ice cream cart. And he pushes this ice cream cart about six to eight miles to the next city where there are some tourists coming. And he sells ice cream during the day and then pushes the cart back another eight miles at night to go to sleep. And he has to get up early in the morning to get there on time so that he can be there during the day. And I said, well, do you make some money doing that? And he says, well, not too much, only about 40 rupees a day. 40 rupees is 80 cents or 50p, 50p a day selling ice cream. And then when, he was ta when we were talking about his food situation and we were trying to work out the food, he said that the food costs are about 40 rupees a day for his whole family. His mother, his father, his wife, he's married, his baby, his sister, about 40 rupees a day. And they're just making it for chapatis and rice and dal, just making it. And so I sit there and I think about, why is it like this? Why is it like this? Why? Does he have a life living on the streets in Bodhgaya? Why do I have so much in my life, so much abundance, so much good fortune? Why is it like this? And those are unanswerable questions. We don't know why the conditions are as they are in our lives. We don't know why. But yet, we are asked to open to them. 
to open to them, to allow the conditions of life to be as they are, and in some ways, if we can, to feel some gratitude for what we have. But yet sometimes it's hard unless we do get some kind of reflection of how it is for others, maybe not so fortunate, for us to feel some good fortune or some gratitude in our life. So we're not just falling into petty worries and petty concerns about ourselves, but something that might help us move into a place of more appreciation and gratitude. And then perhaps this can help us to open more completely, more fully to what we do have without that perpetual wanting something more, something better, something more gratifying, something that will help us get out of this treadmill that we find ourselves in. So this is what the Dharma opens us to, the possibility for some reflection, some awareness, some clear seeing, being able to see our situation with clear eyes, clear wisdom, and perhaps to feel some gratitude feel our hearts open in connection, in truth, with the way things are. And perhaps then we'll really touch some deep contentment within ourselves, which is always there always there if we're able to turn our perception, turn the way we're perceiving things just a little bit, just a little bit. And then we may be able to awaken to that light that is always shining there for us. It's not like something transforms, we become another person when we wake up, but rather we wake up to what's already there within us, waiting for us, <laughs> waiting for us. So let's sit quietly for a few minutes. this quote from Ajahn Chah, the great forest 
meditation master in Thailand. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become quieter and quieter in any surroundings. It will become still like a clear forest pool. Then all kinds of wonderful and rare animals will come to drink at the pool. You will see clearly the nature of all things in the world. You will see many wonderful and strange things come and go. But you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. May all beings live with love. May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings see clearly into the nature of all things in the world. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.